Um, good day. Uh, I am Farid Esak. Uh, I'm a scholar in uh, more specifically Quranic studies. Uh, I'm a professor at the University of Johannesburg in the study of Islam, where I am also the head of the Department of Religion Studies. Uh, today I want to warmly welcome a guest of ours at the department um, and a friend whom I've known for a couple of years but whom I've known about for a much longer period. In fact, I first heard about uh, Professor Charles Amjad Ali when I was still a student at uh, Jamia bin Nouria uh, in Karachi in Pakistan a couple of decades ago and Charles was then heading the Center for Theological, for Christian uh, Theological Research in uh, Rawalpindi in Pakistan at that time. Currently based at, um, in the United States where he is the chair of uh, the Martin Luther King Jr. Chair of Justice and Christian Community at the Luther Seminary in St. Paul uh, in the United States, uh, the twin city with, uh, with Minneapolis. Um, Professor Charles Amjad Ali has an MDiv and a PhD in Theology and Political Theory from Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, other than being a visitor uh, to the University of Johannesburg, he also occupies the Desmond Tutu Chair of, Economic, of Ecumenical Theology and Social Transformation at the University of the Western Cape. Uh, Professor Charles, uh, I want to warmly welcome you uh, to our university where you have been delivering a fantastic uh, series of lectures already. We look forward to listening to you tonight and uh, the full day exposure with a number of other theologians on, uh, on Saturday. Um, <clears throat> I want to talk to you specifically about uh, uh, the problem, and when I use the word problem, I do so in the theological or the philosophical sense. The problem of the intellectual inside the academy, um, and more specifically, and perhaps a bit later on, the theologian in the academy, and then even more specifically, the liberation theologian inside the academy. But let's start from the top. Uh, the question of religion studies. The question of religion studies in a university. Religion studies that uh, contesting for legitimacy with the other social sciences and of course the other social sciences contesting for legitimacy with the so-called pure sciences and even inside the pure sciences, as you know, physics, contesting with chemistry and maths for who is really the pure sciences. So pretty much at the bottom of this, peck, uh, of this uh, pecking order, religion studies desperate for legitimacy, disavowing any claims to uh, subjectivity, to faith and so on. Uh, we are treating uh, religion as any uh, biologist or as a forensic scientist would treat a human body. Um, partly because of our own search for legitimacy inside the academy, but also partly because of many of us have distanced ourselves 
from religion as a faith that give us meaning or that continues to inspire us. What do you make of this tension uh, inside the academy uh, and religion studies jostling for some kind of respect? This, but implying the respect that we're looking for, the legitimacy that we're looking for must come from the top. That is our benchmark. Actually, take that question back a little bit in, in, in this, this series of problematics that you pose, the inner jostling. You, you know, we, we used to talk about in, in, in the German sciences, which the Anglo-Saxon science did not develop. So within the Anglo-Sciences, there's also the approach. The Germans used to draw a distinction between Naturwissenschaften, the natural sciences, the Geisteswissenschaften, the, depending on who's talking about the soul sciences or the mind sciences, and the Sozialwissenschaften, the social sciences. And I, I give the example that the natural sciences demanded from us the purity of the research that was done. So you went into laboratory, covered your head, covered your feet, so there was no contamination. The, the difficulty you have with social sciences and the human sciences, they're contaminated by their nature because we're dealing with a human dilemma. Whether you are dealing with anything else, you're yes. actually dealing with human in their mess. And also, we may look for a transcendent referential so that we are not dealing with the messiness. But you, as long as you're dealing with human, I mean, you are going to deal with the foibles. It's very interesting to note that economy is the only social science that actually gets a Nobel Prize. Anthropology doesn't, sociology doesn't, yes, yes. because it claims to be a natural science. It never works, but it actually always does econometrics. It is in some ways every bit as obscurantist <laughs> as theology, as, theology. as ineffable, <laughs> untouchable. All those things, right? And it talks about the market in the same way as we talk about God. They're both invisible. They both have got rules of their own. They're not determined by rules from this day. So, I mean, if you take the classical economic theory, you have the same series of problems. But what, let me give you a good example. If you want to do a water studies, for example, if you did it as a natural science, you'll go into the laboratory and say the two molecules of hydrogen and one molecule of oxygen makes water. That's all you can do. You can't tell who gets the water. That's not a scientific question. When you come to social sciences and the human sciences, one of them is the division. Who gets the water? You know, if you are in, in certain part of the, South Africa, you know, does Karoo water is equals to Joburg water or Cape Town water? And the different configuration that surrounds about that division of water and the people. But you know, the difficulty with religion is it neither talks about the division of water directly nor does it talk about H2O. It talks of water as a metaphoric reality. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we cried for River Jordan, which is basically a drain <laughs> compared to Tigris and Euphrates. But the source of that symbolic value of homeland, the source of the symbolic value of that water is different either in the, in, in the agrarian sense of social sciences or H2O sciences. It is about that water which gives life. So uh, to me, religion becomes... The, the way we should define in Greek word, episteme, unchangeable science, phronesis, changing science about politics or sociology, it is gnosis. It, I cannot always give you right answers 
but I can show you the way where you can go for right answers. Religion is study is that thing that it actually constantly points and guides you to areas. Now, while we look at religion as a phenomenon, which is a different thing than study, is you had the Joachim Wach tradition of religion, Wissenschaft, religious science, mm -hmm. science. You had Mircea Eliade doing phenomenology of mm -hmm. religion, that this is how religion, there are certain archetypes that get enacted out, you know, the returning myths and all this. But I think both of us come to it from a different thing. We see what is the potential power of a religious symbolic universe on the lives of the people. Our concern lies at that people. Where is religion being used for dominating the structures of power? Where is it being used for liberative thrusts? I'll, I'll, wait, I'll come yeah. back to the question of religion as a discipline intersecting with the lives of people. Okay, okay. Because even in the way in which you're using the lives of people, yeah. you may be using exactly the same term that is used in other branches of the social sciences. Sociology, for example, anthropology or development studies may be using the lives of people in the same way. And yet immediately when you spoke about it, I understood it in an entirely different way the lives of people, um, something more than social engagement, something transcending uh, simple human interactions, looking at uh, an ethical value to it, a uh, transformative value, possibly even a spiritual value. But I'll come back to, uh, to that in a moment. Then, so there is this jostling, and as you say, I mean, uh, uh, anything in the social sciences deals with human, and there is always something messy, something transforming, something changing. It's, it cannot be as definitive as one plus one is two. Yeah. Uh, you're dealing with human beings, you're dealing with ever-changing elements. Fine, that is clearly understood. But when you try to insert into all of this theology and you now bring beliefs which is even far more intangible into this and you want to study beliefs first there is the problem of uh, even describing it as theology from the natural sciences perspective you want to devote a whole discipline to something whose existence cannot be empirically uh, determined. You want to study God, you want to study the theology, theology, the study of theos. Yes. So what is this? Uh, this is as absurd to many people as the, and here my own prejudices come out, the signs of dream interpretation. Yeah. A dream is a dream. A dream is not something that can be verified. When you wake up, there are memories, partial, inadequate, and so on, of this thing that happened through your mind. Is the science of dream interpretation, is it a real science? That's not really the question. The question is how different is the study of theology? I can make sense of the study of religion, but the study of theology, how different is the study of theology, of theology really from something as elusive as the science of interpreting dreams? Well, actually, 
let me answer this in, in, in three ways. I mean, three different ways, and then you'll see the merging. One is, it's clear that we live in a prejudiced world. And I use the word prejudice, I mean, the word prejudicum in Latin meaning having judgments already given to us. The, the problem that you have with the current, and I use the word liberal with the capital L, is that we are born in isolated individuality. We are not born. Why am I speaking English with you and why are you speaking? You come from South Africa, from an Africana speaking home. I come from Pakistan, from an Urdu speaking home. We both learnt English as a conditional clause, not because it was just put into my brain, they opened it, put it. So they're actually a part of biographies which actually form us. You know, where class we are born, in what context. And religion is part of that biographical clause. The quest after explaining that, the quest of understanding it beyond just the first level of assumption, which you call the first level of naivety, if I can use the old argument that you and I grew up with and our liberation theology argument, that there's a first level of naivety. Theology is demanding a second level of naivety. It is to reflect on what I naively believe in. Why do I believe in this? So that's one series of questions. The second series of questions that comes into my head when I think of why is this, if you accept the fact that we all come out of a certain located biographical prejudicial world, you know, our judgment of aesthetics, our judgment of politics, our judgment of economic class, culture, race, all these begin to form us in, in, in patterns of thought. The, the, the question is that what allows us a transcendent away from this determinant existence that we are born into. And to me, you can either go to reason, which is what the Enlightenment did, or you can go to God. Now, my problem with reason is, reason is as much of a dream interpretation as God is. I mean, have you seen reason walk on the street outside here anywhere recently? Have you touched it? Have you smelt it? Have you tasted it? So if, if reason is not sensually available, and I can believe in it. Why is God who is not sensually available? I can't believe in it because reason tells me to do so. What we have done is in fact displace God and put reason. Otherwise, everything reason has is what God had. Now, we have 7,000 years of history. Every society has some notion of God. Only 250 years of reason. Now, given a choice of a world history and circumstances. I will take world history much more clearly than some European sitting down in European Academy making a decision on Fernumpflichkeit. You know, this Kantian reason, which is uncontaminated by locus and condition. So I, I take theology as the part of that dealing with that, that which our senses do not provide. But something in us always is lured by, is seduced by, if I could use that word, is lying ahead of us. You know, one of the arguments that we've made in the early philosophy tradition is that the word subject always referred to God. We were always the object of God. So the word subjectum in Latin always referred to God and because God was a subject. Now what we have done is we have placed ourselves in that subject and God becomes the object of our thought rather than the God that forces thought upon us. And those are different ways of approaching. The third point, and I'll just do this very quickly. The third point that we get with this issue is this notion that what we see is not always what we get. The symbolic universe, if you see a masjid in the middle of Europe, you, you, it's not simply an architect that moves you. 
There's something else that moves you. I see a church in the middle of the Middle East. It moves me in different ways because they have symbolic values that resonates inside my being. And I can't give you, take the cross, two pieces of wood put together. Why should it mean anything? Why should the question mean anything to you? We, which means what we do in theology is provide surplicity of meaning. What science does is reduces it to the minimum point. Mm. What we do is expand mm. meaningfulness. Mm. And science actually works to the minimum part mm. of that meaningfulness. I want to address an ideological dimension to the question that you're raising. Would you argue that the ascendancy of the Kantian notion of disemboweled reason, the ascendancy of this uh, in what is called an enlightened world or a post-enlightened world, uh, very gently, very neutrally, never examined as ideologically loaded, at the same time entirely Western, this now becomes the norm for all academics and all thinking, reasonable people that now must translate into rational. So this uh, uh, rational human being, this rational human being becomes the ideal human being. Is the ascendancy of this notion connected to the ascendancy of a particular civilization that has undisguised hegemonic designs over the entire humanity. And those hegemonic designs are not unlinked to economic interests. What's your take on that? Actually, I mean, just date the dates of Kant and Hegel, for example. And, and then look at the statement on races that they make. I mean, incredible. You know, there's, there's an argument made that Kant was perhaps one of the most, was the beginning of the father of modern racism because he argues that the black and the Indians and all that are incapable of reason. So that means by design, it's not by accident, by design, rationality is restricted to a European experience. Now, here is a man who all through his life never moved 10 kilometers away from where he was born who lived in isolation for 12 years before he writes his first critique, who never moved beyond one university where he taught, educated and taught. This man can talk about a universal value of a reason and make judgment on Native Americans, on Chinese, on Indians. And, and I can give you quotes on this. And, and one has to wonder what is being stated that this person is claiming a universality without allowing full humanity to 90% of the population of the world. Second, that it is tied to high level of colonial experience. It is tied at the, in the heyday of colonialism is when Kant is putting these texts together. So it's not by accident that the historical effects that he knew at all about anything in the world was because they were being discussed in the local paper on what was going on. And he uses the word hot and thought even. So you know what's happening in South Africa is in his mind at the point. So you, you, when you read these texts, one has to ask a question that wasn't a prejudice operational in the colonial, colonial places, given a rationality 
by these philosophers by giving it a universal validity and therefore declassifying somebody as actually not being human, therefore not having a right to their own land and their own property and their own well, therefore, you can then mm -hmm. pose that the people of rationality have a right to rule. And this is going back to the Greek notion of the philosopher king as being the king. Now, rational people are the king of the of the globe. And I think that's a, not a by accident. These are uh, mm -hmm. very temporarily so, located. So, uh, uh, okay, if I understand you clearly, we're not saying that reason and rationality has no value. We're only saying that the idea that that is the only yardstick and the only lenses through which the human experience can be reflected upon, can be thought upon, can be written about, can be studied, that that is seriously problematic. Okay, uh, fine. Let me add one. Yes. By the 9th to 11th, 13th century, you know this period, Islam has already struggled with this issue. Yes. On the role of reason. Yes. yes. Both yes. in hermeneutic of the Quran. Yes. But also yes. in the social hermeneutics. Yes. And reason is promoted, but always subservient. Promoted as a very central discourse, you know, under the Mutazalite, yes, but remains subservient to the placing of the transcendent that our rationality can never become the determinant of quality. So it's not. They moved away from isolated individuality producing reason. And in fact, economy. in yeah. fact, I mean, you know, reason and knowledge, al-ilmu, nor menor ilahi. Yes, exactly. That knowledge is light yes. from the light of God. Yes. So knowledge and reason, it was never seen as antithetical. Anyway. And uh, the medieval <clears throat> Christian used to say ratio dei, reasonableness yes. of God. Yes. Not just yes. ratio. Yes. It was ratio dei. Yes. Yes. So now we are in the academy. We are in the academy, scholars of religion, um, some universities, of course, some institutions more closely tied to the earlier heritages where, in fact, uh, seminaries, uh, Princeton, Yale, yes. seminaries were starting, I mean, when theology was the crown of all disciplines. So you still see remnants of this. But in the more quote-unquote secular universities such as ours and a number of others uh, increasingly becoming the model in the world, uh, we now have uh, theology jostling with uh, religion studies. Let me come to the question of theology in the academy. Now, uh, Charles, uh, both you and I, uh, come from uh, an unashamed uh, corner from which we, uh, uh, in some ways, uh, I, quite, I never quite know uh, whether we are academics masquerading uh, as uh, whether we are academics uh, masquerading as activists or whether we are activists uh, masquerading as academics. Because in our work, we unashamedly approach our fields from particular angles. We of course have this in common with uh, our colleagues in feminist theology um, uh, or in black theology, in post-colonial studies, where we say that there is no way of dealing with reason in a subjective way and the academy is one of those vehicles for us. 
A fascinating uh, image is in fact uh, the one just uh, behind us. So here you have uh, all of these uh, tafasir of the Quran, exegetical works and so on. And prompt in front of them is this uh, Goliath figure with his Palestinian scarf um, flinging a shot probably uh, at uh, his Zionist occupier. So the insistence then of not only coming inside the academy with all its pretensions of neutrality, you inside this place, but you now insisting on looking at all your texts, your hermeneutics and so on, from the angle of the undersides of history. Aren't you undermining the very nature of the academic project? First, as a, the as a religious person, you've got all of this history that you can claim. Uh, Princeton, Yale, blah, blah, blah. These were all theological places in the first instance. Uh, you have a longer view of history when you say that for, uh, for thousands of years, human life and inquiry and knowledge was deeply connected to the quest for understanding God or closer to God. Fine. But you've now found your way into the academy. The nature of the academy has changed. And inside this academy, you continue to find a way of finding space for all of these marginalized discourses, discourses of occupation, of oppression, of patriarchy, of misogyny, of dispossession, and so on. What do you make of the academy as a terrain of struggle? I, I, I have two problems on when the academy became uh, what you call objective. The, especially in our area. I leave aside natural science because it, it, it cannot really deal directly, but it claims that it is doing welfare to the people. So that by the research that I do on medicine, I'm going to help people. Yes, some corporations are going to benefit, but basically I'm doing that for the good of the people. So the good becomes the normative, even in the most objective of natural sciences, that I'm doing this in order to do good, to produce good. You and I unashamedly say, we are whatever we are doing is for the good. And the question that comes in is, is this, you know, the classical Greek understanding of ethics, that it's either good or it's beautiful and or it, it brings about happiness. Yeah, eudemia, aesthesis and ethics. Those are the, the basic three categories out of which we come. The, the problem that you get with this kind of objective, I'm, I, let me quote to you a, a person who I find deeply moving always is, 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 is Antonio Gramsci. He says the role of the intellectual very early. I mean, you know, remember, he's also a man in prison who gets killed by Mussolini. So you really are talking about this handicapped person who's writing about this intellectual role. And he says there are two kinds of intellectuals. One is the organic intellectual who takes the underside of history as a basic location of thought and reason and work. And the other is the traditional intellectual who in the face of suffering even wants to remain an adjective, you know, objective. Objective, yes. Wert frei, value free. 
if you can find that place, I keep telling my social science and human science versus, you're claiming divinity to yourself. This value free. This is value free. Only God can be value free because of the level of transcendent God can achieve. If we are located in history, we are located on the topos, on the earth, we cannot be value free. Anybody who claims value freshness is actually doing a blasphemous act of claiming divinity for themselves. They're more than welcome to it. Let God punish them. I don't care. But I don't think this is possible. That is to give my ontological answer. But moral answer is this, that in the face of suffering, if I want to be objective looking at everybody's side, then the point is I am actually automatically siding with the one that oppresses. That's the problem with it. And the image that comes to my head is of the nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. He sat on this objective wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And look at it. No people came to put him together. All the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty together again. The fall of this objectivity only status quo want to put it back together. But the people who know they are suffering will not even come near this part. And, and the reality, of course, <laughs> So, the reality, of course, is that status quoism yes. is also an ideology. Yeah, absolutely. And all the advocates of status quoism have a vested interest, also tied to their economics, also tied to their careers, also tied to their pockets. So they have vested interest to defend. And the tragedy is. And they hide behind objectivity. And they, they hide behind objectivity and accuse those who disturb the unjust norm of being activist. No, being, are, being not being, objective. Of, no, also being activist. Activists, yeah. They are also activists. They are activists in the service of status quoism. And status quoism is an ideology of the power. Yes. <clears throat> okay. But Charles, at the end of the day, here on the wall, a guru of mine and yours, uh, Edward Said, uh, who tells us that the task of the intellectual is to speak the truth to power. We find ourselves in an environment where the intellectual has a particular meaning. Somebody that engages in intellectual inquiry. And intellectual is something that must uh, involve the head. It's not meant to involve the heart. It's not meant to involve uh, the deeper senses of human beings. And we are continuously told that the task of the intellectual, after, after they have defined intellectual, is to search for the truth. Not even to speak the truth, to search for the truth and to publish the truth. You may publish in obscure journals and so on, but you publish the truth. The task of the intellectual, we are never told, is to speak the truth to, to power. power. When you say the task of the intellectual is to speak the truth to power, this location of the intellectual we saying must be located on the other side of power. We agree. We would agree with uh, Edward Said on that. Yeah, I totally agree. Edward Said Marhum. Marhum, yes. Uh, Absolutely. May, right. The problem, Charles, I and you find ourselves in the academy. 
The academy is not the terrain of the marginalized. Who the hell are you and I to be sitting in the citadels of power, wanting to fight for the marginalized, going along with this logic that even the academy is a terrain of struggle, but we are not engaged in the lives of the poor, and the marginalized and 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 having academic debates inside this and this is i suspect your dilemma uh, i sit on uh, a number of organizational boards and so on of course i'm very active in boycott divestment and sanctions uh, against uh, israel that's my major terrain of struggle but at the end of the day charles when our bread and butter our primary jobs are inside the academy. Isn't there a huge gap between what we say? Why do you say that which you don't do? So, all of these claims, lofty uh, claims that we make, significant critiques of the Enlightenment and the absurdity of objectivity and so on, all of that we do, yet here we are, sitting in the academy, occupying prestigious chairs and heads of this and heads of that. Uh, business class lounges are far more familiar to us uh, than the townships and the jugis, Garibo or Miskino, Jidar Garib or Miskin Logjoeg, Zindagi Guzartehe. They exist there, they don't even live there. So what do you say about the contradictions in our lives and in our ideas as liberation theologians and thinkers of uh, the peripheries inside the citadels of intellectual power? Again, I mean, one of the, one of the questions that comes in is that even in, in this citadel of power, one of the questions that is defined as a teleological reasoning is the quest for and the search for truth which means we don't have truth in our possession. It's not like a five rand coin in my pocket. You know, the search for truth becomes, there's a wonderful biblical passage on my door at Luther Seminary, I have it. You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. There is actually a requirement of getting to know the truth before you can be free. One of the, the issues, we have actually the tragedy of human suffering on the one hand. And what we do in and for them is, is a series of issues. You know, do we provide a band-aid for the suffering which is necessary at the time? We should do this, we should work for it. But that is not the goal. That is not the end. The end lies that why are these people suffering? The, the, the classical parable that the Bible has is on, on, on this, this, this guy who gets mugged, right? And the question is not who helped the question is why did he get mugged you know what is in that road we need to do to make sure that that doesn't happen now this is just as much of a role of an intellectual rather than policing that area day and night we have to make sure that the people who are making the decision on legislation understand that that road is unsafe between Jericho and Jerusalem and that something needs to be done about it. It's not just providing the priest who would put a bandage or a Samaritan who would put a bandage or a Levite. But this, this role of providing 
the people who are in control to first understand what is it that justice requires? What is it that you require of the human being? You know, the first intellectual thing that the Western tradition talks about is a discussion of Plato's Republic. And you know what the central question there is? What is justice? So whether everybody understood it or not, that's what leads to the understanding. There is no intellectual who is not public. Anybody who is not in the public is not an intellectual. Intellectual is not in isolation. You know, the, the problem that you have with this heart and head and, and heart and stomach, my gut reactions, the gut I know, I can tell you what it is. My heart, I can tell you. Tell me, have you ever seen intellect either? It's not a brain. It is intellect. All of a sudden, you create a dualism between the material thing that you see and the yeah. non-material thing that you don't see. Yeah. So all of a sudden, a transcendent non-material thing is used and saying that which is materially available to me in my heart and my gut is not sufficient. So all of a sudden, I'm dismembered in my intellectual activity. It is me, Charles Amjadali, who is doing it, who has guts, who has heart, and who has brains. This intellect is not something abstract. So the very question of this objective knowledge is to take it out of history and objectify it. And taking it out of history, taking out of materiality, taking it out of the context. The question is, if the truth is not to power, the truth is not there. We are actually supporting the status quo uh, with an inability to see the victims. Yes. The sheer ability to see the victim is the beginning of truth. Yes. That to me is the beginning of truth and therefore it's the beginning of knowledge, whether it is episteme or it's phronesis or it's gnosis. It is to see that in the polis there is injustice. Yes. Therefore, it's always activist, always truth to power. Without that, there cannot be truth without cognizance of power in truth but ideology. Yes. Uh, Charles, I want to leave you yes. with a thought that I often leave people yes. with, you know. Uh, religion, theology, like everything involving human beings, are contested terrain. But for me, and I know for you, there is one non-negotiable truth. And that is that there isn't a single prophet who came into this world and made his or her primary question how do I fit in with power? How do I fit in with the status quo? And I don't care how you want to define prophet, whether he is your Martin Luther King, whether he is your James Cone, whether he is your Buddha, whether he is Muhammad or Ibrahim or Musa or Yaqub or Ismail, I don't care. Not a single one of them came and said, how do I fit? fit in with power. Every single one of them came and asked, how do I speak truth. the truth to, to power? power. <laughs> and so if we need any assurances uh, 
cozy as this may be amongst two uh, uh, comrade uh, intellectuals, believing comrade, believing comrade <laughs> intellectuals, cozy as it may be, uh, we seek uh, refuge in that. I, I, can I just give two, one secular Absolutely. answer? Max Weber writes this wonderful book, Protestantism and the Spirit of Capitalism, where he talks about instrumental reason, Schweck rationalität. Having written this whole book, at the end of this, he writes that this nullity that we will produce out of instrumental reason will think it's the highest form of evolution. Soulless, emotionless, objective. He says you will need new prophets. A secular sociologist philosopher is now asking at the end of his work for rationality. Yet you need new prophets to open the imagination up again. That's one thing I just want. That's the part of your, I'm just confirming from a completely secular position you and I can do from religion. And, and of course, we're using prophets in the broad <laughs> no, theological sense of the word. <laughs> well, yeah. Charles. No, and and la the last point, Jeremiah. Yes. And I, I quote, he talks about false prophets. Huh. He says, these false prophets talk about peace with the status quo. There is no peace. Do you know, and this is a very, he's the first stripper who walked and ran around naked in the streets of Jerusalem to make a point that these guys were false prophets. Mm. So streaking is not that bad a thing for prophecy. I leave you on that controversial note. <laughs> Charles, thank you very much. Bohot, bohot, shukriya. God bless uh, you, my uh, brother. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.